Why would anybody that claims to be a child of God and one of, and says they want to pursue Christ's likeness want to be involved in something that is the complete opposite, church, of your values as a Christian? Those charlatans and those liars, those enemies of the cross, Paul calls them, they are not an example that you should follow. Because they mind the values of the world system. They mind the values, church, of the system that we were transferred, transformed from. That's why Paul says, do not have fellowship with those people because they represent the world's value system. This is the Divine Truth Podcast a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Philippians chapter 3. Everyone uh, in the public eye, uh, and all of us are in the public eye to one degree or another, need to be careful how he or she behaves. Many politicians have ruined their careers because of their immoral and or dishonest behavior. But sadly, few of those have resigned voluntarily because of their indiscretions until uh, they were either embarrassed or their political party was embarrassed. But every believer would do well to remember the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2, 12 and verse 2, where he said, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. And our job as Christians is to set a godly example. Philippians chapter 3 Beginning in verse 17, if you would please stand out of respect for God's word as we read our text. Philippians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse number 17. This is the word of God. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Christian mommy blogger Megan Hill apologizes. She writes the following words. I have no memory of becoming a Christian. 
I did not pray a prayer. I did not walk an aisle. She says, I did not have a a eureka moment. I do not remember a time, she says, when I did not love Christ. In fact, she says, my Christian testimony, the story of how I came to faith in Jesus Christ, she says, is downright boring. Does she need to apologize? She continues to write, I ate my peanut butter sandwiches with prayer. I recited prayers at bedtime from the children's catechism. Songs that I remember from my youth were either my father singing Beatle tunes or hymns from our church's hymn book. She says, church life shaped the weekly rhythm of my childhood. The Sunday school teachers and youth leaders reminded me by their very presence that there were others that loved Jesus Christ also. Everything important to know in life, I claim before memory. I embrace, she said, before I was three or four years old, God is my Creator. Christ as my Savior. The Spirit as my Helper. The Bible as my rule. Does she need to apologize? Does she need to apologize for the lack of drama? No heroin dens, no motorcycle gangs, no flashes of lightning on the road to Damascus to knock her down. Does she need to apologize? Well, she thought she might. She goes on to say, in fifth grade, I began to attend a Christian school where dramatic testimonies were a regular part of morning chapel. Week after week, speakers that were drug addicts, former atheists, told of God's rescue. She says, I love those stories. But she said, because of those stories, I began to fear that I was not truly saved. Because I did not have the horror of my past. So therefore, I became convinced that my testimony was inferior. Was it? While we can and we must church have love for those accounts of rescue from every stage of life from the wayward paths of believing that God is able and willing to rescue anyone that will turn to him in faith but we still have to ask ourselves what is the ordinary Christian life what is the normal path by which most people from ancient of times Come to faith in the God alone who can save them. While we must celebrate those that have been rescued from death to life by reading a gospel track or reading a Gideon Bible in a hotel room or some other kind of crusade where hundreds, perhaps thousands of people stood and watched that person being transported from death to life. And while all those stories are wonderful, And while we love those stories, and we must, what is the ordinary path to faith? What is the way in which most people are saved and come to Jesus Christ? The ordinary path we must keep in mind, church, of coming from death to life throughout history is by maturing in a Christian family that loves the Lord. By those prayers that were prayed at the kitchen table. By helping us memorize verses at dinner. 
by the regular involvement of our family in the rhythm of church life, you know, most of us, our entire time growing up, remember the song from our very infancy. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We remember those songs. When children grow up before they can even speak and know the fact that Jesus loves me and He is my only Savior. We have five-year-olds in the academy that will pray for lunch and they will pray in their prayer, Jesus, thank You for loving me. We have young people in our academy that will pray, Jesus, thank You for dying for me. And when those children grow up and they witness the faithful lives of mom and dad, they grow up being taught to obey God's Word and to practice His truth. When they grow up seeing life revolving around God, when they grow up seeing the regular rhythm of the family of covenant parents being serving God, when they grow up in that, do not be surprised when that becomes a way of life for them. Because that's the ordinary path. When children embrace the things of God from their childhood, it just becomes a part of the way they are. Do they, when they become adults, need to apologize for that? Do they need to come to a large group of people and say, I'm sorry that I wasn't strung out on heroin before I came to Jesus Christ? Do they need to come before large groups of people and say, you know what, I am sorry that I wasn't a prostitute before I was saved. I'm sorry that I wasn't an alcoholic or a wife beater or an abuser of my children before I came to Christ. I'm sorry for that. Do we need to apologize? Does that adult need to apologize for the fact that they had parents and other people that showed Jesus Christ to them in such a way that it became a pattern of life for them? Do they need to apologize for that? Do they need to apologize that the call of salvation for them was just as effectual as the call of salvation for those people that lived a way of hardship? Do they need to apologize for that? No. No. They do not. Instead of apologizing to a a group of heroin addicts, instead of apologizing to a group of prostitutes that are now saved, I'm sorry that I didn't live your life. They need to stand and boldly say, thank God I was in a family that loved God and served God and it became a normal rhythm of my life and I did not have to go down your path to come to Christ. They don't need to apologize for that. But thank God for those people that were godly examples. And as you and I pursue Christ's likeness, Paul spoke about in verse 17 that we need to focus our attention on people that are godly examples. That not only do we need to focus on those people that are godly examples, but that we as believers need to be ourselves those people that have godly examples of which others can follow. Praise God we saw last time together two weeks ago. Praise God we understand the fact that that we do not need to be perfect examples, do we? We saw last time together that the Apostle Paul was himself a sinner that had had humanness and had the frailties of the flesh. But yet Paul could say in verse 17, be followers together of what church? Of me. 
And you may not be perfect this morning. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say, you're not perfect this morning. And neither am I. But you and I can be a godly example as we seek Christ's likeness, number one, by following after examples. But there's a second point that Paul talks about in this. Not only do we need to, by, by pursuing our own Christ's likeness, not only do we need to follow after examples, but we need to flee from enemies. We need to flee from enemies. Church, listen, I don't, it doesn't, it, this is one of those axioms. It's, it's so provable that it doesn't need to be said. But since I'm doing the preaching, I'll go ahead and say it. Not every example should be followed, right? Not every example should be followed. In fact, I'll go off so bold as to say that not every quote-unquote Christian example needs to be followed. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. For many walk, Paul says, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even what? Weeping. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. The apostle makes it clear, church, that while you and I pursue Christ's likeness, that we need to recognize that there are many examples that we do not need to follow. In fact, in verse 18, Paul calls them what, church? The enemy of the cross of Christ. And here's the warning for which you and I need to be mindful, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They were not necessarily, church, hostile to religion. In fact, church, I'll, I'll say that many enemies of the cross are in fact very religious. That's part of Satan's ploy. That's part of Satan's deception. To disguise themselves as the messengers of the cross. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, or don't be surprised at this, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. They can be part of the church. They can even possibly be part of the leadership of the church. John Stott says this, the devil disturbs the church as much by error as by evil. When he cannot entice Christian people into sin, he deceives them into false doctrine. And it subtly makes them especially, church, dangerous. The New Testament, for example, constantly warns against the danger of, that is posed by false teachers. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. You had false teachers like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, Elimus in Acts chapter 13, and you had the Apostle Paul dealing with Hymenaeus and Alexander in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1. The Apostle Paul warned both Timothy and Titus in 1 Timothy 1 and in Titus 9, Titus 3 rather, to avoid false teachers who dabble in myths and genealogies. And then we have this warning from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but what? Put to the test. Try. 
put to the test every spirit, whether they are of God. Because why? Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit that is of Antichrist, wherever ye have heard that it should come, and now, even now, already is in the world. And John says in 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And the dual-edged problem is that you have to deal with, look at verse, seven, look at verse 18 again, where Paul says, For many walk. For many walk. You have the apathy towards truth. You have the shallow knowledge among those that profess Christ. And as a result, you have a tremendous lack of discernment among those people that know Christ. John MacArthur said this, it is astonishing and disturbing to see the things Christians believe and the people they follow. Did you get that? It is astonishing and disturbing to see the things Christians believe and the people they follow. Folks, listen. A lack of consistent, long-term, and precise exposition from the pulpit has led to the lack of precise biblical thinking and discernment in the pew. And the result is, is a widespread victimization of the church by the enemies of the cross. How do you tell those people that are, the, that are the enemies of the cross? How do you tell those people that are false? The same way you tell good examples, right? Verse 18. For many walk. The word walk here in verse 18 is the same Greek words in verse 17. Just as you discern church by the conduct, the good examples, you discern by their conduct the enemies of the cross. John Calvin said this, these people, they pretend to be friends. They were, nevertheless, the worst enemies of the cross. Let me tell you something, folks. I believe with all my heart. That Adolf Hitler was a less of an enemy of the cross from a theological standpoint than most of your people that on the airwaves because the people on the airwaves claim to know God Adolf Hitler didn't at least he revealed himself these charlatans and liars that are on the airwaves are under the guise of Jesus Christ and therefore bring in those people subtly they by pretending to be friends as Calvin said but even though they may pretend to be friends they were the enemies of the cross but notice what Paul says in verse 18 again for many walk of whom I have told you. Notice Paul says of whom. Paul is not identifying false doctrine, but he identifies the false teachers themselves by saying these are the people that you should not imitate. And notice what Paul says in verse 18. And now tell you even what? Weeping. And the word weeping there speaks about loud expressions of pain or sorrow to lament. 
This is the same kind of lament that is used, for example, in Luke chapter 8 in the news that the temple official's daughter had died. It's the same kind of lament that Mary made outside of the Christ, the tomb of Christ in John chapter 20. And it is, in fact, the root, Greek root word of this is the same word for lament that is used in Matthew th- chapter 13 of those people that are weeping and gnashing their teeth in hell. And Paul was wailing in lament, he says, because of the effect that these false teachers were having on the church. He is absolutely heartbroken. And here's the point, church. Your Christ-likeness will be tremendously hindered if you do not have a multiplicity of godly examples to follow and if you are not one yourself to others. And your Christ-likeness will also be severely hindered and even stifled if you listen to and follow the teaching of false doctrine. And I'm not talking about blatant false doctrine. I'm talking about the false doctrine that's under the guise of Christianity. I don't care how charismatic. I don't care how winsome they are. Church, listen, that is the whole point of the ploy of Satan. Because they are, Paul says, the enemies of the cross. The enemies of the cross. And so as we chart our course toward Christ's likeness, we must follow after examples, but we must flee the enemies. Because notice the, notice the end of these enemies of the cross. Notice what Paul says. Number one, I want you to see the doom they face. This is the result of these enemies of the cross, the doom they face. Look at verse, the first part of verse 19, whose end is what? Destruction. All people that show by their walk to be enemies of the cross face the same doom whose end is destruction. Paul does not mince words. He clearly states, church, that the end of these people is eternal destruction. The charlatans and the liars that fill the airwaves in the name of Christ by their walk are enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, Paul says. But not only the doom they face, but look at secondly the deity they serve. Whose God is their what? Whose God is their belly? And of course, this doesn't refer to the physical belly, but it refers to sensual lusts. They're following their bodily desires. They worship what feels right. They worship what feels good. They, they, they gather for worship and they only do those things that draw people. They only do those things that make them feel good. The divine authority of their life is not the Lord, but the divine authority in their life is their own feelings, their own desires. And my question to you today is this, why should a believer who is trying to pursue Christ's likeness, why would they ever want to follow that? Why would they ever want to come in line behind one of these charlatans and liars, these false teachers, these enemies of the cross, and use them as a godly example? And why, if they do, will they will their Christ-likeness be hindered? Because those people do not want worship the one true and living God. They worship only what feels right. They worship only the message. They preach only the message from Scripture that, that feels right to them. They don't preach the message that goes against their desires. They deny the truth and preach the opposite. They worship themselves. How often in the 30 years, 31 years that I've been blessed to be in the ministry here, have I stood in the pulpit and encouraged people 
of the, of the false teachers not to follow. And yes, there have been times, a few times, uh, admittedly, but there have been times in those years that those people that are sitting in the congregation get mad at me because I have the audacity to mention names. My heart doesn't break because they disagree with me because I'm just a man. My, my, my degrees and my knowledge and 50 cents will buy you a cup of coffee. I'm not upset because they disagree with me. My heart breaks because they're listening to false teachers whose God is, the, who is their own God. And that will stifle your Christ-likeness. Folks, listen to me. Calvary, I mean, uh, Shepherd's Chapel is a false teacher. Did you know that? Shepherd's Chapel is a false teacher. Rodney Howard Brown is a false teacher. Jesse Duplantis is a false teacher. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. Priscilla Shriver is a false teacher. Tony Evans is a false teacher. And unfortunately, church, the list can go on and on and on. They're charlatans who are enemies of the cross. But what makes them more, what makes them the most dangerous is that they say they represent Christ. But they don't by their very teaching. They represent themselves as the enemies of the cross. And then when God's people fall in behind those people, it will stifle your growth. It will stifle your Christ-likeness. But number three, what's the, what's, the, what's the third mark? The disgrace they bear. Look at verse 19 again. And whose glory is in their what? Shame. They pride themselves in things that should bring them shame. The message they preach should bring them shame because it's not a message of truth. But they glory in it because it increases their attendance. Their message of health and wealth should bring them shame but they glory in it because it fills their bankrolls. Their message of cheap grace should bring them shame, but they glory in it because it gives them a spot in, on The View or Oprah. And that's why Paul begged with lament, with a loud lament, for them to be discerning. I don't have to tell you, church. I don't have to tell you folks. There's some people that I have to tell this to, but I don't have to tell you folks that not everybody that's on the television or on the radio under the name of Christianity, you need to be listening to. And the moment that person standing on the stage or a platform preaching, or the moment that person on the radio says, health and wealth, put your seed of faith in me, put your seed of faith in my ministry, and God will return it to you, at that very moment, you know that they're a charlatan and a liar. Because God never promised you that. You say, Pastor, why do you keep bringing that up? Because it's so prevalent. It's everywhere you turn. And when Tony Evans says that you don't have to hear the true gospel from the word of God to truly be saved, he's a liar and a charlatan. When Joyce Meyer says that the word of God is not really inspired, she's a charlatan and a liar. And God's people need to be warned. Paul warned people, didn't he? Paul warned people by, by mentioning names. You say, Pastor, you know Apostle Paul. You got that right. I'm pretty. Paul was ugly. Right? And that's what you always said, Pastor. Yeah, he was. Trust me. And if we follow after, you come in behind those charlatans, church, it will stifle your growth. 
But also notice the disposition they display. Look at verse 19 again. Who mind earthly things. The word mind is uh, from Neo, and it means to set your mind on something. Those examples that believers should not follow have their minds set on the things of this world, which just shows the exact opposite of what God's people should do, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says what? Set your affection on where? Things that are above, not things that are on the earth. And the earthly focus offers us, church, evidence that these were enemies of the cross and they're not saved. James says it this way in James chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world makes you an enemy of God? Whoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is God's enemy. John says in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And of course, the word world there, the word cosmos, is not speaking about people, but it is talking about the world's system, the world's values. Why would anybody that claims to be a child of God and, want to, and says they want to pursue Christ's likeness want to be involved in something that is the complete opposite, church, of your values as a Christian? Those charlatans and those liars, those enemies of the cross, Paul calls them, they are not an example that you should follow. Because they mind the values of the world system. They mind the values, church, of the system that we were transferred, transformed from. That's why Paul says, do not have fellowship with those people. Because they represent the world's value system. And no Christian who is seeking Christ's likeness and who wants to be filled with the Spirit of God should ever go after those people for no other reason because you do not want to be identified with the world's values. I don't care if it's a layman sitting in the pew, folks, or if it's a pastor standing in the pulpit, if their focus is gaining materially, if their focus is gaining earthly, when you ask a person to plant a seed of faith in your ministry and God promises that it will come back to you, your disposition that you display is focused on something earthly. When Peter Popoff sells his miracle water on television, he is a liar and a deceiver. And he minds earthly things. Because his display is on earthly things. The disgrace he, bear, he bears is that he should, is what bring, is what should bring him shame, bring some glory, because the deity he serves is himself, because the doom he faces is everlasting punishment in hell. And no believer, Paul warns with weeping, who is interested in Christ's likeness should ever follow that kind of example. Listen to me, church. Turn them off of your radio. Turn them off of your television. Turn them off of your podcast. And follow the godly example of those people that are truly following Christ's likeness. Not those people that pretend, but that are truly enemies of the cross because their message is anti-Scripture. But number three, focus on expectation. Follow after example, flee from the enemies, and follow, focus on expectation. That's how we become more like Christ. By following the after examples, by fleeing from the enemies, the enemies of who? The enemies of the cross, and by focusing on expectation. You know, those people that are truly pursuing Christ likeness, 
will have included in their deepest desire heaven. You know, it goes back to the old song, Brother Nathan, this world is not my home. I'm, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. There's absolutely nothing, church. There are many things that I love. I love my wife more than life itself. I love my children a little bit less. I love my children. I love you. I love you more than I never thought I could love a group of people in my life. And I mean that sincerely. I love this church. And I love and, and, and I love this property so much I decided to move on it. But as much as I love there's absolutely nothing that ties me to this world because the deepest desire of my heart outside of this is heaven. And so what does Christ's likeness do for us? It gets us ready for heaven, doesn't it? And in contrast to the bad example of the believers we saw in verse 19, look what Paul says in verse 20. Our conversation is where? From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word conversation, of course, means our citizenship. Those who seek Christ's likeness show that their true citizenship is in heaven. The citizenship there, the Greek word, refers to a place of, a, a place of official status. A place of official residence where I am registered as a citizen. Think about that, church. As a believer, you are a registered citizen of heaven. But the best thing, let me tell you, the best thing about being a registered citizen of heaven is that heaven is not a democracy. Heaven is a theocracy. I am sick to death of a democracy. I want to be in a land that's ruled and reigned by God Almighty. I'm not a citizen of this world. Therefore, my value should not be formed after this world system. I'm a citizen of heaven. My name is there. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice in this because your names are written in heaven. My name is there. Think about it. In the vast spans of eternity, the creator of the universe wrote Michael Huffman in his official registry of citizen. So what's our response to that? Three words. Act like it. Act like you're a citizen of heaven. Not because you're not a citizen of this world. And as citizens of, the, of, as citizens of heaven and not citizens of this world, we should not spend our time acting like citizens of this world. Citizens of this world act like heathens. Because this is all they've got. This is, this is, it was put to me like this the entire time I'm growing up. This is the only heaven an unsaved person will know. And this is the only hell an unsaved person will know. This is all an unsaved person lives for. And so they act like the value system of where there are citizens. 
Your name, if you're a Christian this morning, your name is in a better place. Your name is written in heaven. God personally, before, before the foundation of the world, personally wrote your name in his book of life. Bonnie, whatever her maiden name was, huh? Gibson, should have known that. Bonnie Gibson, chosen. Michael Huffman, chosen. And as wonderful as a lady as Bonnie is, is, she didn't deserve grace. And neither did I. But your name is there. Not only is your name is there, but I love this, your Savior's there. Amen? Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the, the angels, remember they came down as the, the disciples were looking up toward heaven with their mouths gaped wide open, I'm sure. You know, you can just get the picture, just all 11 of them looking up with their mouth wide open. Angel came down and says, you guys, shut your mouth. Let me tell you something. This same Jesus that's taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you've seen him go. But I like this. Our fellow saints are there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Well, there's so many people I want to see. How about you? <coughs> when I get there, but like Fanny Crosby, I want to see my Savior first of all. And I want to see Grandpa, whose body is now whole, because the fellow saints are there. And what a time that will be, right, church? When all of God's people gather on that shore for eternity, gather around the tree of life, the river of life, walk on those transparent streets of gold. And don't ask me to explain transparent gold because I can't, but that's what it is. Just go with me. And we gather there together and worship for all eternity the God who made us, who chose us, and redeemed us by his grace and he says come into a place prepared for you and I can't wait to see you because the fellow saints are there but only that my inheritance is there to an inheritance incorruptible Peter says undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you my reward is there Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. My treasure is there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, lay, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And since church, all of those things are there, what does a person who is genuinely seeking Christ's likeness have to gain here? Nothing. Nothing. 
And we seek true Christ-likeness when we understand that, as he said in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Notice what he says, from whence also we look. The word look there means to have earnestly expect, expectations, to earnestly wait in hope. Not in the hope of maybe it will, maybe it won't, but in the hope is I know it's going to happen, but I can't wait. Christ is coming. And I look eagerly for him. That's why Jesus said in John 14, for in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, ye may be also. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath of come. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves. Have you ever done that? If you're over 45, every day you get out of bed, you groan within yourself. You say, Pastor, I resemble that remark. <clears throat> yeah, you probably do. Brian, yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure Brian did some groaning this morning. Bless your heart. Waiting for what? The adoption. <coughs> the, the redemption of our bodies. Those who, like Paul, run to obtain the prize of Christ's likeness, we fix our hope on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where one day we will enter our eternal home in heaven because that's where our citizenship resides. And look what he says in verse 21, who shall change? You look forward to that? Who shall change our vile body? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And in Christ's likeness, church, we pursue then what, it will, what will be realized in that day. We eagerly await the redemption and transformation of our bodies. John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that. When he shall appear, isn't that good? We shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. And then one of my favorite passages, I, you know, I know I say that a lot because I have a lot of favorites, but one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 15, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall not all be dead, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trump, trumpet will sound, and we and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You may read one day or you may experience one day that Michael Huffman is dead. Hopefully you'll see it, meaning that y'all still all go to church here, is what I'm trying to say. But one day I'm going to be dead if the Lord tarries his return. But that is just a doorway to my Savior. Because that is where my citizenship is. And then the day is going to come where my dead body that's gone, that has put six feet under, it's gone back to ash, is going to be resurrected. 
and it's going to be changed into an incorruptible body. And again, Paul says, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When people ask me what heaven is going to be like, when people ask me what are we going to be like, you know, how old are we going to be, what weight are we going to be, the only thing I can tell you is that our bodies are going to be like his. It's the only thing I can tell you. Whatever we, whatever we deduce about Scripture, about what we're going to be like, we know that we're going to be like Christ's resurrected body, and it's much, much greater than we could ever think. But the believer who pursues Christ's likeness, their focus is on that expectation. Their focus is not on what they can gain here, but their focus is on the fact that my citizenship is in heaven and I'm going to be changed one day. My corrupt body is going to be changed one day. I'm not going to have bad knees in heaven. I'm not going to have a bald spot in the back of my head, according to my wife, in heaven. I think we'll probably all be completely bald in heaven if you want to know. Probably. Be, it'll be beautiful, glorious baldness. Unlimited bowling alley wax to keep it shining. Right? We pursue it now. We pursue Christ's likeness now, but we realize it then. And I like what Paul says in the last part of verse. He's evil, even able to subdue all things unto himself. The word subdue means to bring under subjection. Christ will have power in Revelation chapter 21. He will have power to rule the millennial kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 14, he'll have power to change the earth's topography. In Isaiah chapter 11, he has the power to change the animal kingdom. And Paul's point is this. If Christ can subject the entire universe to his sovereign control, he has the power to sovereignly transform the believer's body into his image. So, so church, pursue Christ's likeness because we must be focused on the expectation of this corruption being incorruptible and becoming more like him because you and I don't live here. Our citizenship is there. As we run our spiritual race, we must look to godly examples. And we must be a godly example. And we must use discernment to know those people that are the enemies of the cross, that are the enemies of the truth. And those people that would lead people astray and shun them. And we must focus finally on the glorious hope that is ours in the return of Jesus Christ. The hope of a transformed body into His image. Folks, you want to be like Christ this morning? You follow after examples. Be one and follow them. Find them and follow them. And be one yourself. You want to be Christ-like? Then flee from the enemy. Don't put yourself under those people that are liars and charlatans and the enemies of the cross. Keep your focus on the expectation one day I'm going to be with the Lord and this vileness will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. And let that, folks, be the focus and the pursuit of your entire Christian life. I want to be like Christ. Follow after example. Flee the enemy. Focus on the expectation.
Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m., as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.